All right, my name is Ted Nugent, full-time, and I am proud to share the American rhythm and blues rock and roll musical dream with my blood brother, Robert Miller. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Robert, follow your dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed in your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Elliot Randall, a legendary guitarist. You may not know his name, but unless you've been living in a cave since the early 1970s, I am sure that you're familiar with his work, most particularly his earth-shattering solo in Steely Dan's big hit, Reeling in the Years. And if for some reason you're not familiar with that song, we will play it for you later in this episode. Elliot has worked with a who's who in the music business, including the Doobie Brothers, Carly Simon, the Blues Brothers, Jimmy Webb, Laura Nairo, and Saturday Night Live. And then he's got a whole other career in jingles. And as I do with all of my musical guests, in the second half of this show, we are going to do a song fest together. I've asked Elliot to pick out three or four of his best works that he likes to focus on. And uh, we're going to play them and talk about them and get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And I also have arranged with Elliot to do a special segment just with him. I'm not going to tell you anything more about it right now, but a little bit later, we're going to do that special segment. And my featured song in this episode, and I always feature a song of mine underneath the introduction, and then we play it again at the end. And I try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this case, I have picked the song right now from my solo album, Miller Rocks, that I recorded remotely during the pandemic. Why did I choose it? Well, I chose this song because first, I think it's a great rock song. And second, it's got a knock your socks off guitar part played by my Project Grand Slam bandmate, Tristan Clark. The same kind of rock'em sock'em guitar part played by my guest on so many records. So Elliot Randall, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll tell you, you know, we started out when we got together here and we, I realized, and I think maybe you did too. We actually met like 50 years ago. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That blew my mind. (laughs) I mean, I, I didn't do too much session work. Okay. But the one that I do remember clearly was like late sixties, maybe early seventies. And I don't remember who the artist was. I don't remember what song it was. But I remember that there was this fabulous guitarist named Elliot Randall that was playing on that session. And I also remembered it because you complimented me on my bass playing and stuff like that. You don't forget. Well, you know, to me, when you're doing a session, it's all about enjoying the music and enjoying the people that you're working with. And I don't throw compliments around loosely. So, you know, you're a good dude, man. You play beautifully. Well, I thank you for that. 
talk a little bit about your career as a session man, because you, you did that for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, I started doing sessions really in the mid-early 60s when I was a teenager. And by the time the late 60s rolled around, I'd made enough connections to where I was being invited to play on different artists' albums, like Eric Mercury, The Electric Black Man, a woman named Susan Carter, who was actually a big DJ out in L.A., who had a beautiful voice, absolutely beautiful. Um, and it introduced me to guys like, you know, Bernard Purdy, Chuck Rainey, uh, Paul Griffin. And as time went on, especially here's where the, the break came. In 1972, uh, my band was asked to do the original Broadway production of Jesus Christ Superstar. You were going to be the band on, on, on that uh, show. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, we did it. And it was, it was a, a very interesting experience. And I, I use the word interesting advisedly because a lot of it was really, really fun. And a lot of it was usually when you play a Broadway show, the job of the musician is to come and play exactly the same music every night. Right. And after a while... <laughs> Even as good as the music was, it got a little a little tedious. I always thought it would be boring to do that kind of thing after a while. Yeah, it was. I, I left after a year, and it was really good timing to leave. But uh, I digress, because it was in the middle of doing that show that I got all sorts of um, recommendations. The band was not just my band, but my five-piece band, but there were, it was a total of about 28 musicians. We had a string section and a horn section and percussion. And a lot of these guys were doing recording sessions as well as doing Broadway. So I started getting a fair amount of recommendations. And at that point, my career started to, to grow uh, as a session musician. In 1970, I think it was early 73 that Reeling in the Years came out. That kind of cinched it. Um, and the calls came in fast and quick and it was great all right well we got a segue into that at some point we may as well do it now because to me that was your crowning moment as a guitarist i mean it's as again as i said at the beginning it's a legendary solo and you know when i went back to listen to the record again knowing that you were going to be on the show to my surprise i i found out that you, you really had three solos in that record okay yes so you had a solo at the beginning. There's a solo in the middle. then you do an outro kind of solo on the thing as well.
tell us about the backstory on that piece about your time with Steely Dan. I mean, I think people want to hear about this. Sure, sure. Well, I knew Donald and Walter uh, well before they were Steely Dan. All three of us were in a backup band for Jay and the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> with a guy named Kenny Vance, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Because we were looking for an echo, an answer to ourselves, a place to be in harmony, a place we almost found. And Kenny actually was the guy who put things in motion for Donald and Walter. We found ourselves in the studio with Kenny producing a lot of demos for Donald and Walter. So it was the, the sort of the sketch pad for what was to become Steely Dan. I remember this is Donald Fagan and Walter Becker we're talking about. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. Just for people that may not know the names. All <laughs> right. So keep going. Tell us about this session and the song and the whole thing. Well, at the end of my tenure with Jesus Christ Superstar, coincidentally, um, I decided to move out to LA. So I was kind of getting my, my feet wet in the territory and enjoying it very much. And I got a call from Donald and he said, we're, we're working on some stuff here and without getting into, you know, the whole nine yards, but I, it, it all dawned very quickly on me what was going on. They were doing their first album for ABC Dunhill. And um, they'd been having a bit of a problem with uh, their satisfaction in terms of the guitar parts, the, the, those three solos that you're talking about. And Denny and Jeff, who were the Denny Diaz and Jeff Baxter, who were the regular guitarists with Steely Dan, just for some reason weren't making them happy with their renditions of what they thought the, the solos should be. So, I was asked to come in and, and give it a go. So I come into the studio. It was at um, Village Recorders out in Santa Monica. Beautiful studio. And I walked in and uh, they played me the track. I said, oh, that's really nice. So it was the track without the solos, but room for those solos? It was everything but the solos. I mean, they were ready to, to go and start mixing once they had the solos. So, I mean, it was, it was really complete and really quite masterful in my mind. So I, I asked them for a copy of the lyrics because I felt that if I'm going to solo on top of something, I need to know what the intent of the song is. So they gave me the lyrics. I looked at it. I said, oh, great. Okay, play the track. And the track was really quite simplistic in terms of what the chord structure was. So it didn't require, you know, super high level of, of, of mastery of... Of, of, of music, although music theory always helps. Um, <laughs> so they played it for me, and um, I, got, I, I had gotten the right sound with Roger Nichols, the engineer. Uh, his, this is just an aside, um, but in New York, all the studios have amplifiers sitting in them ready to, to be used. Right. In LA, there were very few amplifiers. So this studio didn't have any sitting around. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. A recording studio <laughs> without amplifiers. It's like, like not having microphones or something. Well, the thing is that all the studio guitar players would bring in their own 
amplifiers. Okay. And and it, it was it was really quite a, a See, in New York you can't well. do that because you'd have to lug them on the subway or something. Out there they're probably driving around. Oh yeah, well they have carted services. And what they would do is they would have their amp carted and it would cost them 25 bucks and they would charge the client 75 bucks. <laughs> so it was another way of, you know, adding a couple of pennies to their paychecks. Right. In any event, we found in a storeroom next to the village recorder, a, an area containing a bunch of amps. And uh, Roger and I looked at them and there wasn't a great choice. And the only amp that seemed like it might do the trick was an Ampeg SVT, which you'll be familiar with as a basis. It's, it, it's a monster. You know, it's got a zillion watts. It's got eight speakers. And it was, you know, forget 11, it went up to 22. This is a top to, a, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board, oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, the and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we cranked it all the way. And Roger, being a very smart guy, you know, kind of shielded his ears as he found the right mic placement. Curiously enough, he used only one microphone. It was an AKG 414. And he just found the sweet spot, you know, the tone that was that was shearing out of the amplifier and a little bit of ambient sound as well. What was that? What else was going on in the studio? Well, you had a really interesting sound on that solo. I mean, it's kind of a distorted type of sound, you know, almost like a fuzz type of sound, but it fit perfectly with the record. Yes, everybody thinks that I used pedals. And I say, no, no, it was just the Stratocaster into a cable into the amplifier. That was it. So, okay. So, it but, worked. you know, we, yeah, well, we got the right sound. You know, I mean, Roger, bless him. He, he, he's, he was the key to a lot of that. So we, we ran it through once. And everybody's jaw dropped because I, I seem to have hit exactly the right solo. And Gary Katz, the producer, says, all right, can we hear that back? And the, the poor assistant engineer says, oh, I didn't record it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, that's the first okay, rule of recording. Hit the record button. Well, these days, yeah. <laughs> that's because people learn from mistakes like that. Oh, my God. In any event, I mean, the next solo was exactly what you hear. I didn't touch anything. Once that solo went down. So did you plan it out or did you just kind of do it extemporaneously? It was extemporaneous. But I will say that um, the slant on the intro came from a sort of a jazz-esque place, which is quoting the melody, you know, a little bit. Yep. So they go, are you reeling in the years? And I went, it, it's it's sort of foreshadowing what's going to happen yeah it fit it fit perfectly it just worked it worked i was so I was really lucky. this was a one shot you just laid it out there as perfect as it came out you know what you remind me of on my first album which i did in the mid 90s i i did a song and it we had a part for a solo and somebody suggested to me we should have a trumpet play that solo and i said well that's great but who are we going to get and they said let's get randy brecker and, you know, Randy Brecker, for anybody who doesn't know, was one of the original members of Blood, Sweat and Tears, just a monster musician. 
Anyway, he comes in, listened to it once, and hit the solo, and that was it. It was 15 minutes, okay? Just like you, he came in, he played it, he was gone. Just amazing. So when I hear about a guy like you that did it, you know, first time, that's just super. Well, it's nice to be in that kind of company. I mean, I've I've loved Randy. We've known each other since we were teenagers. Uh, It also reminds me of a very funny old, another Steely Dan incident, incident, which is um, the sax solo on Dr. Wu. Right. Phil Woods was tasked with that. And he came in, he listened to it once, went into the studio, played one solo, and he just knew that he had it. So he finished the solo, comes out, and puts the sax back in its case. Nobody said a word because it was perfect. It was just the right solo. I got to tell you, I have a, a, a funny Phil Wood story myself. I was playing at a festival out in Telluride, Colorado. Oh, yeah. This is 20 years ago, uh, something like that. And Telluride is, you know, 3 million miles up. Okay. It's such a rarefied atmosphere. It's like 11,000 feet. And Phil Woods was on with his band before my band was playing. And after each solo, he had to go to the side of the stage and take oxygen, okay? <laughs> because yes. you, know, it, you just couldn't breathe in that. I was, it was amazing to me that any of the horn players could play because otherwise you'd faint, you know, at that, <laughs> that level. You know, you got that's so right. I, funny enough, the same thing happened when I played in Colorado with Richie Havens. who would just belt at the top of his, you know, his, his strength and lungs and beautiful, artistic, gorgeous voice. And he, literally the same thing. After every tune, he needed to take a break, get a bit of oxygen, because it's it ain't the same. No, I mean, you, you imagine you're playing on top of Mount Everest. That's what it's mm. like. You have to have supplemental oxygen to play at that kind of level. Anyway... So you've had some really interesting experiences with Steely Dan, and uh, and we've played Reelin' in the years. I want to go to the um, that that special session or special segment that I mentioned before, which I haven't done with anybody else. But you know, you're known for this fabulous solo that you did in Reelin' in the years. You did another fabulous solo in Fame. But it, it made me think that there are only, to my mind, a handful of solos on the guitar that have been done during the rock and roll era that literally made the song memorable. You know, not just a good solo, not just one that fit, but just a solo that you said, wow, that song was made by that solo. So I picked out a handful of solos that I felt 
fit that bill. And I've asked Elliot to do the same. I hope you've You've done your homework here. Of course. I wanted to discuss it. All right. So I'm going to go first. And I already told you about this one because you wouldn't expect it. But I remember when I first heard The Who playing I Can See for Miles, which was, you know, kind of mid-60s. And Pete Townsend did this one-note solo on that record. I said to myself afterwards, wow, that solo was perfect. So that's my number one. Amen. Less is more. It's that's great. Right. Interesting aside, by the way, on fame, when I was doing the solo, the brief was, we don't know how long the solo should be because we don't know how we're going to cut the film. So you've got and it was a lot of bars, you know, on, on the full version, it's, it's like probably 32 measures or more. And after every eight measures, I had to actually come to a conclusion and then pick it Start up again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, and each of them had to be different and it had to build. Um, so it was really quite the challenge. I can imagine. Wow. <laughs> All right. You don't even, you don't know what the hole is that you're filling. That's, That's right. unbelievable. Okay. So let me hear your first special guitar solo. Okay. Let's go with something possibly obvious or possibly not obvious. Um, when Jimi Hendrix first hit the scene, one of the first tunes of his that I heard was Purple Haze. Boy, I remember that one. Why do I love it? Well, for a lot of reasons, he starts out with this very dissonant. Eh, 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 eh. You know, it was like it wasn't the rock and roll that we were used to. Yeah. And with his, you know, incredible sound, it, it was just it was a wonderful experience. And he really he really blew on that solo on his on the solos on that tune. Yep. So, yeah, Purple Haze would be one of them. I played that one in my high school band, so that was one of my <laughs> favorites. Now, I picked out a Hendrix tune as well, but I picked out a different one. I picked out his solo on All Along the Watchtower. thinking about that today yes yes now that was his cover of a dylan song but again you know he made it his own and you know, like you just said he did stuff on the guitar in general but on that song i felt that you just never heard from anybody else absolutely wonderful wonderful good choice <laughs> <laughs> thank you okay you're up next okay do you remember the group spirit sure okay 
um, I met them back at the scene, Steve Paul's The Scene, which was this little, little basement nightclub in Manhattan. Yeah. Really when they were first making their, you know, making a scene on the scene. At Randy the scene. California, my correct? Randy California. He was unbelievable. And the tune that I've chosen, and it was just completely, without really researching, because I love a lot of their tunes, but the tune that came to mind first was one of their early ones called Fresh Garbage. Okay, I do not know that one. Oh, it's wonderful. I think it's on the first Spirit record. All right, we're going to play a little bit underneath, so uh, we'll, we'll all get to know it. And it might be noted that, you know, where people talk about prog rock and, uh -huh. and, you know, the stuff that really came out of the, I think the 70s, to be fair, and on. Um, these guys were doing it in the 60s. If you listen to it, it's not ordinary in the slightest. It, they, they were a group that were around for a while, but they, they didn't really make a big, big mark. You know, so only the, uh, the, the, the really hip people kind of knew about spirit. Well, that's because, yes, and that's because they didn't make a mark for whatever reason, you know, whether it was promotion or, 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 or whatever. And then, of course, there was Randy's tragic death, his drowning, you know. So they, they, they only had a window, so to speak. Yes. But they were great. They, they were, were great. Okay. My next one, and th this is maybe obvious, but I always thought it was just a gorgeous solo and i'm talking about eric clapton's solo on the beatles while my guitar gently weeps And why did I pick that? Because like you were saying before, when you were looking uh, to do the reeling in the years and you, you wanted to see the lyrics and know what the song was about in order to figure out how your solo was going to go. Well, that solo, you can almost hear the guitar crying. And I never forgot that. And I thought that that was just a magnificent solo. That's a good choice. That's a really good choice. Okay. You're up. Okay. Um, I got a bunch more, but I'll give you just one to start okay, with. Give me, give me one more. Name a couple other names. Um, there was a jazz guitar player who was part of the Wrecking Crew out in Los Angeles called Howard Roberts. And he played on, you know, hundreds of hits that came out of L.A. Uh, in any event, I think his first album was called H.R. is a Dirty Guitar Player. 
and it's just filled with all kinds of wonderful, jazzy and funky guitar playing. And if I were to choose a track, again, off the top of my head, he did a version of Watermelon Man, uh, Mango Santa Maria made right, famous. Right. And he did it completely different. It was to a ride beat. And he did it. So, you know, the feel was different. The, the whole approach was, was Howard Roberts. And it made such an impression on me. Well, when you have a unique approach to anything, you appreciate it. At least I do anyway. But the thing about Howard that's also important to note for guitar players, well, soloists of any kind, is that he, like Townsend on that one-note solo, he knew that less was more. So a lot of his stuff is really quite tempered, but when he wants to get into shredding, wow, he could play fast, he could play furious, and it's just such a pleasure to hear a mixture of approaches to any particular tune. Right. So he was the man for me. Well, okay, speaking of shredding, I'm not normally a guy that loves seeing people play as fast as they can. Cause I think it's uh -huh. just a lot of showboating for the most part, but Amen. there was a guitarist in the sixties named Terry Kath, who oh, was the leader of Chicago when they started and Chicago turned into a completely different band after his death. But mm, before, yeah. and when he was at the top of his game, if, if you ever listen to his solo in the song 25 or six to four, I mean, again, he just made that song to me. He did indeed. He did. I mean, that's, that's what I remember most about that tune. And funny enough, he was one of Jimmy's favorites as well. Well, he was a great guitarist. And, you know, there's some live footage of him playing with the band. Uh, they played at Tanglewood, which is in my neck of the woods in Western Massachusetts. And again, his solo on 25 or 64 was just magnificent then. You know, great, great guitarist. And Another guy, unfortunately, that we just lost too soon. Sadly, yes, you're right. The Shakespeare Concert, the new album by my band, Project Grand Slam, will be released on March 28th. Recorded live in the studio, it features 15 of our greatest hits. The reviews of the album have been simply spectacular. 
The album has been praised by famous musicians like Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, Joey D of Peppermint Twist fame, and legendary guitarist Elliot Randall. And the reviewers have called it perfection, five stars, and a masterpiece, among other accolades. Pre-save your digital copy today of the Shakespeare concert at a special pre-release price. Just go to thepgsstore.com. Again, that's thepgsstore.com. You're going to love it. I promise. Okay, let's go on. Thank you so much. That was so much fun to, to, to hear your thoughts on this and to share those guitar solos. Let's move on to doing the Songfest portion of this interview because we've picked out some songs of yours and I want to play them a little bit underneath and I want to have you talk a little bit about them. So the first one is Honey Dew. Not honey, don't honey do, <clears throat> honey do. Uh, that was a, a rare put together thing in the sense that I was doing an album for Don Kirshner, my second album, and I really wasn't enjoying the label. And I thought mm, I'm not I'm not really gonna put a whole lot into this record, although I will. I mean, I did anyway. But uh, my dissatisfaction with them was pretty obvious, and the album never was released. So one of the tracks on it was Honeydew, but it was really different. The only thing that you hear on this record from the original is Paul Griffin on, on uh, organ and John Belushi singing. Everything else was replaced here in the 21st century. And it just turned out like I had first envisioned it, which is somewhere between New Orleans and somewhere in that great big Southern Delta uh, and it worked. It really worked. I'm very proud of it. And you know what's so interesting? Belushi could really sing. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, people thought of the Blues Brothers as just kind of a, a not a comedy act, but, you know, a show business kind of thing. And it was, but the guy could sing. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, John and Dan were, were both avid, avid blues enthusiasts. And, and I shouldn't say blues enthusiasts because they actually did it. Um, but my hat's off to them. I mean, John was wonderful. He was absolutely wonderful. And funny enough, on that session, uh, which was in 1980, um, he took me aside after the date and he said, Elliot, would you like to be the, the musical director of the Blues Brothers? And I thought for a minute, and I thought for another minute, and then I remembered how we were all really abusing ourselves if you catch my drift right. so so um i passed i said you know i love you guys i'll play with you whenever you want but i i just couldn't couldn't take that on why don't you talk to paul schaefer <laughs> well you know i heard a rumor and i want you to tell me if it's true that you passed on a couple of other offers that oh, steely dan asked you yep. to be in the band and toto asked you to be in the band 
Is this correct? It is. It is. Okay. So why, why'd you make those kooky decisions? Huh? Do you, do, I was, I was waiting for that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you ever regret it at this point? No. Uh, the only one I regret a little bit is Toto, but there too, you know, it was, it was sort of dangerous territory. Not that I'm, not that I'm a sissy, but I was sort of coming into a different phase in my own life. So there were certain things that felt like they might not be as appropriate in my lifestyle as I would have liked. And so I passed on that. All right. um, yeah, I, I passed on the Doobie Brothers. At that point, I knew that uh, they basically told me that if I joined, they were going to kick Jeff out, Baxter out. And it was my sort of blind loyalty to Jeff that I kind of said no to that because I loved the band. I absolutely loved playing with them. But to me, bands are, and I, you know, if you're in a band, God bless you, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. But for me, I've always found them to be kind of like dysfunctional families. And there's a certain point in a band's life where things get really awful. And I think I'd been in enough bands at, by that time to sort of say, mm, maybe I won't do that anymore. Yeah. I was, I was really, you know, I had a great life as a studio musician. I love playing live and different people would ask me to go out and play with them, which I did. You know, I went out, I went out as John Baez's musical director for a couple of tours. Um, with the doobies, I just go out. We had a lovely uh, arrangement where they would, they had their own airplanes. So when they got to New York, they would call me up and say, hey, Elliot, you want to come out for a week or two with us? And I go, mm, yeah, I think I'd like to do that. And it was like, you know, it was hassle-free. I wasn't worrying about anything interpersonal. And it was just the joy of playing music with them. So you were able to do it on your own terms, which is even more exactly. impressive. Good for you. Good for you. Thank you. Okay, I approve of all your rejections. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go on to the next song. Take Out the Dog. Tell us about that one. Oh, I love that one. Um, that's been a staple of mine since 1970. And when I play live, which I haven't done in a couple of years for obvious reasons, but when I play live, I always do that tune. There's enough people that remember Randall's Island, funny enough, and particularly over here in Europe, we were reasonably popular. And so the song always gets a great reception. Now, what I remember about Randall's Island is the cover of the LP. You had this cool hat that you were wearing at the time. Oh, I wish I still had that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It, it was a nice album, a nice album for sure. Thanks. I mean, the thing about Randall's Island that's, that's kind of interesting is that all the musicians that I chose for that project were really, really well-schooled and they understood music and they understood their instruments. And that's kind of why we got hired to do the uh, Jesus Christ Superstar show. Because uh -huh. um, everybody could read and everybody could just, you know, virtually do anything. And the albums that we made were rather eclectic. And as a result, back in those days, Polydor kind of didn't really know what to do with us. Well, right. we can't, you know, they're not this, they're not that, they're just them. And rather than trying to promote us on being them, they you know, didn't do as good a job as we would have liked. But um, it's not sour grapes. It's just that's the way it goes. I know, it's the way it was. So much of the record business was, they back then at least, they would record so many groups and then figuratively throw it against the wall. And if it stuck, they'd chase it. And if it didn't stick, they'd just drop it. Exactly, exactly. Mind you, and I keep, I keep reminding people of this. You know, everybody's down on Spotify. I'm one of them because, you know, they pay crap money. Nothing, yeah. Um, but, you know, the whole business model has changed. And musicians are yelling about, well, I'm not getting the kind of royalties that I used to. No, you're not. You know, it's just, again, I, I can't say no sour grapes, but I, I kind of approach it from 30,000 feet. And go, you know, I know it, it's it's not great, but actually, for musicians and artists and players, it never was great. <laughs> it's always about you know the people of the very very top pulling in the monies, yeah, and and basically, you know, it, that's not changed except for the divisions, which have changed dra quite drastically. Well, you put your finger on one thing in particular. I have a, a, a negative feeling about Spotify as well, because the company's worth $50 billion, mm. you know, in the market. And like you said, they, they pay musicians less than a penny, you know, per stream, which has changed the world. And, you know, it's funny because I got a new album coming out soon and people say to me, well, how are you going to put it out? I say, well, I, I you know, I, I'll still put out CDs, but the problem is that I don't know anybody that's got a CD player anymore. Okay. You got Everybody it. seems to be listening to music, you know, via the streaming services. So, you know, when in Rome, you got to do what the, what the Romans do, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm with most streaming services. I'm just not with Spotify and I'm not with YouTube because, um, because they don't treat us. They treat us worse than everybody else does. Yeah. And um, yeah, funny enough, I put up a post uh almost a week ago on my facebook page with neil young talking about spotify right. well that was, it was a joke it was a meme yeah and um the discourse that followed that i just thought it was funny and cute you know but there must have been like 50 or 60 people in this thread who were arguing with each other and you know it was over politics and over this and over that and I thought, oh my god this is not what i wanted because i i stay away from that kind of stuff um, in social media. I don't, I don't think it, it, welcome to 2022. Everything be becomes controversial at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So it unfortunately goes. it was a, it was a much nicer time back in the day. I want to do one more song of yours as part of the song fest. Okay. You've got a song called later last night.
So tell us about that one. Okay. Um, it's a combination of the tune Last Night uh, that came out of out of the South. Uh, I think it was the Marques or the Barques, one or the other. Uh, and it's a really great horn tune. And it, it had been in my life forever because when I was playing in nightclubs in the 60s, if you had a horn band, that was part of your repertoire. It was just a really great kick-ass tune. And um, at one point I thought, you know, I just think I might write something that complements this and see if I can't put the two of them together, which is what later signifies. <laughs> and um, I had it sitting in one place. And this is funny because, you know, you talk about the advantages of the digital world in terms of editing and things. I didn't like where the entire part was sitting. So I said to my engineer, grab that and move it over to the top. Okay, you know, a couple of mouse moves. And all of a sudden, the song took on a different personality. So, so you know, there's nothing you can't do if, if, if you have a mind to it and you have, you have a dream. You know, you remind me, uh, if, if you uh, ever look into the way that the recordings used to be done back in the day, you know, George Martin used to speak about this with the Beatles, you know, they're, they're doing things on reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. They had like four tracks to begin with, and they have to slice and dice the, the tape in order to do an edit. And, you know, it, it just seemed like the most convoluted process. And now, like you said, everything is done uh, via a computer and a program and a mouse. And it's so easy to do it. I mean, you were part of that era back then. It was not easy. Yeah. I, I still have a very warm spot in, in, my, in my heart for uh, razor blades and splicing blocks. <laughs> but, you know, you just it's very rare that you're going to get a chance to use them anymore unless you're recording strictly analog. So funny enough, I mean, I've developed, I haven't developed, but I've, I've adopted a system whereby I record analog and just bump it over to digital so that you've got that nice analog I call it distortion, but it, it's really quite subtle. There's something that analog does that digital doesn't. So if I can capture the analogness and then move it into the digital world, I'm happening. And that makes me very happy. Well, that sounds like a very good way to try and do it for sure. We have been talking here with Elliot Randall, a fabulous, legendary guitarist. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you and to get to know you and all these stories and the, all the bands you turned down joining. <laughs> I love I love all of that. And uh, we are now going to listen again to the song that we started out playing underneath the introduction. It's my song called Right Now. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you all in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Well, I just didn't think that we should lose this. Yes, I just didn't think that we have all these fears. But I can't let you go because it's taking us years right now. Through the life with you I thought that you wanted to I hope that you'll see it through right now
Right now. Right now. 